This panel was part of the SGPS Scholarship Beyond Boundaries Conference hosted at Queen's University from the 29th of February to the 1st of March 2020. Welcome everybody. Good morning. Good morning. It's, um, it's, it's been pretty awesome here so far. And I, I was sorry I missed some of the sessions yesterday afternoon, but uh, the ones I have been have been fantastic. So this particular session is it's one of the hardest ones, I think, when I was reading it. <laughs> Being not an academic, it made it a little bit harder for me. I had to do a little bit of uh, Google search and things like that, but I know it's going to be a fascinating three talks. So we're looking at the research in the area of interdisciplinarity, and this panel will focus on the use of multiform methodologies within academic research. It will demonstrate how creative works may be recognised as theory, and that theory can and should be read as a creative undertaking. Crossing the boundaries of arts and science helps us develop rich understandings of the subjects at hand and push our conversations beyond their insular discursive realms. So you, always, you academics love using big words. But there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Hence I needed a Google search <laughs> so, when I was reading some of the abstracts. Anyway, so um, we're going to have three panellists again today, um, three people on our panel, and so what I'm going to do is introduce each one individually when they come up. It makes it a bit easier to remember the topic before they get started. And so the first one, we um, have Marcus, who is going to be talking about revisiting mosaic, a transformative articulations within an ethicsography, um, within ethicsography, sorry. Um, I was thinking of wanting to put something else on that. And just a bit of background about Marcus um, is a white queer trans space case and daydreamer living in Toronto. I love that daydreamer. Drawing on both visual arts and written storytelling, Marcus works to ground his artistic projects in the collective strength of his communities. He is the author of several young adult novels, including Just Julian, Romeo for Real, and the new released We Three. He holds a Bachelor of Arts in Sociology from Ryerson an MA in Gender Studies from Queen's University and is now undertaking a PhD here at Queen's. So um, I'd like to welcome Marcus up to get things started for us. Thank you so much, everybody, for being here, my fellow panelists, the folks who came out to the panel, and um, people assisting with tech and introductions. Very much appreciated. Um, why don't we just hop right into it? because I'm really excited to hear what the other panelists have to say as well. Um, just very briefly, you might want to have a seat where you can see the screen near you, because I will be playing a, a video clip. So just FYI, um, I think there's screens on either side of the tables. Make yourself comfortable. So uh, my project uh, is titled Revisiting Mosaic, Transformative Articulations Within an Ethicsography. Um, sorry. Just keep going. I just want to check that the sound is good. OK. Yeah. Um, so Mosaic was a documentary and dialogue filmed in 2012 and released on DVD in 2014. And uh, it's what we described as an exclusively transgender project, including the project team. So my vision for the work when I undertook it was I was used to, well, I wasn't that used to seeing trans people on screen. But when I did see trans people on screen, um, they were almost never in charge of the production of their stories. It was usually uh, a work of telling a story for largely a cisgender audience, being produced by cisgender um, uh, editors and production teams. Um, just for context, cisgender would be the uh, opposing description to transgender. So if transgender is one who transitions their gender, cisgender is somebody who does not transition their gender. 
Uh, we use it instead of terms like biological, normal, whatever, um, just to recognize that we all experience gender and trans people just experience it in a way that um, is transitional. <laughs> so um, the film followed that vision from 2012 to its release on DVD in 2014. And then in 2018, as part of my master's program, I returned to the film for an edit and online release. And this included a critically reflexive analysis of the project's initial epistemological and methodological foundations that I'll be discussing with you today. So like I said, Mosaic started out as a very personal project. I was actually not a, a student at this time at all. I had no formal training in community-engaged research, and I had no formal training in film. Um, I just knew there were stories out there that needed to be told, and I knew them because I was searching for them, and I, know, I, I knew I had a story to share. Um, at the time, I was openly queer, openly transgender, dealing with different types of disabilities, um, and I was a white settler living in Toronto. Um, and the, the summer I made Mosaic, I had just been accepted to my undergraduate degree and then also found out I was being evicted. Um, and I had two months before I was about to start school. Uh, I knew when I came back I could move into temporary housing, but I had two months where I didn't have anywhere to live. So I decided I was going to take this vision I'd been building and take it on the road. And I started couch surfing across Canada and the United States for the summer. Um, I went from here to, uh, so I started in Toronto. I hit up Montreal, New York, Philadelphia, Orlando, Tampa, Houston, LA, and San Francisco, and then came back. Along the way, I only stayed with other transgender, non-binary, otherwise gender non-conforming individuals, and I collected about 50 interviews in total. Um, and all of them, I asked them, what is gender, what is the trans community, and how do we survive together? So um, I actually am going to quickly exit this slideshow so I can show you a clip from the film. This is the trailer that I produced in 2018 for the online re-release, but it gives you a little bit of insight on that initial summer. Can I find gender? <laughs> Whoa, um, that's a really big topic. Oh, yeah, that? No, baby. I knew my gender was different. There was just not really a space for me to be different in this different way. I guess I'm just a shift. <laughs> uh, as soon as I came out, I looked for other people. It was like to me, a group of people, you know, that came together to discuss what they are going through. I think I don't feel part of the trans community. I don't know enough. I wish I could let people know that I'm here and that I'm trans and that I'm would would help a stranger, would like talk to someone I don't know. Of course there is. There there's there is a there is a trans community, there is a non-cis community. I hope there is one. That would be really cool. going through Craigslist ads, definitely searching for intimacy. <laughs> I would see the messages, no fats, no femmes, no Asians. The gays and lesbians, especially the white ones, don't want anything to do with us most of the time. There's a lot of racism and fatphobia even within the trans community. Yeah. Uh -huh. 
not really a big part of my life. Um, I'm just music. There's always that kind of buzz in the back of your head, that voice in your head, that you're not getting that type of thing. And I don't think that ever goes away. God talked to me. And God gave me a word for my gender and a word for my body and a message that I was okay. We're not outcasts, we're legendary creatures. We're like unicorns, we're mythical. My parents and my family as a support system have really empowered me to think independently and to really believe in what I think as an intersex female. I cannot allow them to use their cisgender privilege ideology um, to, to belittle me, nor can I elect the hypocrisy of trans sisters and trans brothers. They tried to put me in a box, and they couldn't keep me in the box, nobody could. Not a lot of people know this. Now it's going to be on camera. It's going to be kind of awkward. So, that was the trailer for Mosaic. And uh, when I returned to this documentary, uh, I looked back at the original source material and found something a little bit curious. Um, I found that I actually, ironically enough, did not actually have a lot of documentation of the documentary, despite um, having, obviously, the the film footage to work with. Otherwise, there wasn't really a lot to talk about my own experience on the production side of things. Um, notably, uh, when we did the launch in August 2014, this uh, continued. Uh, as you can see, these are the excerpts from my journal, um, in which on the 27th I say, the documentary is being launched tomorrow. I can't believe it. I'm really excited, nervous, and proud. And then on the 31st, uh, I say, the show went wonderfully. Can't believe we pulled it off. School starts this week. And there's, these are on the same page. There is no entry in between. So why would there be a lack of information here? Uh, going through my own memories, going through my own journals, I found a large amount of absence. And that actually reminded me of some of Avery Gordon's work on uh, what absences might say or refuse to say. And to ask, what field does field work occur? What field did this documentary take place? And, and in other words, what methods were being used here? Um, so I actually went, once again, to the source material. On the screen, you can see these are some of the original questions that I asked the participants. Can you define gender? Um, what has been your experience with transphobia? Do you believe there is a trans community? Do you feel like you're part of that community? Um, what would be a life lesson you'd like to share? So uh, I wanted to focus on a few key moments that were highlighted in that clip and also uh, that really influenced my return to this documentary as I undertook a re-edit in 2018. Firstly, uh, the, you might have seen it very briefly in, in that trailer, uh, a person named Michiko laughs at the camera saying, can I define gender? And that actually is in response to a question that um, I had asked from behind the camera, 
can you define gender? And in that moment, by laughing in response and actually mirroring the question back to me, I realized now that that actually was an expression of our relationality. It called me out from behind the camera and broke down the documentarian documented but dynamic and instead also articulated uh, a world in which gender essentialism, even transgender essentialism, was already and inevitably laughable. Or again, uh, this conversation between me and a woman named Jia Qing, uh, in, uh, I asked her a question about uh, trans community, and at the time, the question was phrased, what is your experience with trans community? And she responded, in that question, I'm hearing a little bit of a statement about community, like we've got some hall we go to every Friday night and just get drunk and talk about our packers and hormones. I don't doubt there are places like that, but I don't think there is any one place. Or this conversation with Neil, where I asked about Neil's experience with transphobia. And they responded by telling me a story about how they couldn't get a cab one night. And they were walking down the street experiencing harassment as they walked with a female friend, people saying, who wears the pants in that relationship? They went on to tell me several more stories about being at bars or being out or doing drag and the things that they experienced and the things they observed as well. Um, and they concluded their storytelling by saying, sometimes it's not said out loud. It's all these subtle things that happen around. And I'm somebody who const constantly observes people, so I notice these things and combat them with sarcasm and razor-sharp wit. What at first I took as comments that actually uh, subverted my questions, and they did, but they actually were also very generous offerings, inviting me to rethink the way in which I was posing these questions. Zha Qing's uh, situating of the abstracted community, pointing out how absurd it would be that there would be a singular bar that all trans people would attend, articulates the way in which communities formed through a political or politically mobilized identity actually are very hard to uh, recognize materially and are much more frequently fluid, uh, temporally, and spatially specific. Um, simil similarly, uh, Neil's response, complicating the understanding of transphobia that I was trying to put forward, spoke about the realities of their intersecting experiences with anti-black racism, classism, um, anti-sex work, anti-femme uh, you know, ideologies, um, and that understanding of transphobia expanded on the kind that I was bringing to the table. So again, these interactions used humor as a form of compassionate critique that broke down the barrier of documentarian and documented person and instead invited me to rethink the way I was actually asking these questions. So returning to this original footage, I saw the way in which people were shaping the questions. Literally, some of those comments changed the way I asked questions in future interviews. But for me to really uh, be pushed out of the uh, purely authorial role in this project. The whole thing that I was originally trying to go against, right, the idea that a single person could tell transgender stories as a whole, um, I actually needed uh, some help. And that came in the form of my editor, Shane Camastro. Shane and I had been longtime friends. Uh, they knew I was undertaking this project. I was in over my head. They did have film experience and said, I will come in on this project with you and I'll help you out. We secured a grant in 2014, and that's when we began uh, fully editing that original footage. And the end of the film is actually something purely that Shane created and surprised me with when we were seeing the final edit. Um, looking into the camera, I let out a laugh and say, the last thing I want to do before the show is over is answer my own questions. I turn away from the viewer, and the camera goes black. The name starts scrolling up for the credits, and little boxes start to pop up, and people are giving their life lessons to the viewer. And Morgan advises, get money first, money up front, especially for sex work. <laughs> Michiko offers advice on balancing humility and self-respect. Um, Matt suggests, don't think about it too hard. Neil says, what you ask for is what you get. 
these complementary and sometimes contradictory statements um, each uh, provided an opportunity for that individual to get their say and move towards what I now reflected on was really not a mosaic but a collage. So the title mosaic was something I came up with before I even left to make the film. It was just a word I liked. And if you really think about it, mosaic, the process of making a mosaic is taking little pieces and trying to make a bigger picture, which is really what my goal was. But Shane, by using collage, brought together disparate pieces and instead of trying to make a bigger picture, pointed out how their disparity was actually their strength and they complemented one another. They didn't need to form a greater whole singular image it was their differences that were important. So these transformative questionings of my role as the interpreter highlighted the way in which Mosaic really was a collaborative critical reflection and an ongoing conversation. Mosaic became a work of relationships and while I had failed in finding a singular trans community, I think I actually helped make a temporary one, which was highlighted on the night of the event itself. When we launched the film in 2014, instead of showing the entirety of the film, which resulted in a three-and-a-half-hour, two-part DVD, um, we instead chose to invite people who had been involved in the project and our friends of friends to come and do a showcase. We had 10 performers, all trans, non-binary, gender non-conforming, come up and do dance, poetry, music, all kinds of different performative engagement. And we also invited everybody who had been on the production team and all their friends for a pay-what-you-can party at Buddies and Bad Times Theater. Shane and I stayed up the whole night the night before making food for the event, and then I became the MC. When the night arrived, as you can see in my journal, I found myself speechless. Interestingly, we also don't have a lot of uh, footage from that night because our photographer had to leave partway through the event quite unexpectedly, so we only had a few clips just from the very beginning. So a lot of that night exists in an absence. So to think about the methods and epistemological foundations of this work, as I returned to it in 2018 as a graduate student who then had a little bit more of an understanding about community-engaged research, I realized that this work could arguably be described as a radical ethnography, uh, following the queer, feminist, anti-racist, and anti-colonial tradition in that form of method, living within a community and trying to learn from inside of it. Um, I also was reminded of Nassar Dave's uh, concept of the community of ethics and her own ethnography, in which she imagines queer, and I would also argue trans communities, sometimes form through debate and development around uh, ethics. Um, so I decided, started to describe Mosaic as an ethicsography, which is a term I actually developed with an individual from cultural studies named Sebastian Deline, um, who pointed out the problematics of imagining the trans community as uh, an, eth like an ethnic group, or as the ethnography uh, term would describe, and instead uh, the two of us collaboratively, collaboratively defined it as an ethicsography. So again, Mosaic continually evolving through our collective conversations. Redeveloping the film, I was informed by these lessons from the original documents and from my reflections on the work and the present. Um, I reduced the length of the film to one hour. I improved the subtitles to uh, emphasize the importance of accessibility in the work, and I made it available online for free. In revisioning Mosaic, I critically engaged with these ongoing conversations, touched on those transformative invitations that really changed the work, and tried to recognize my role um, and challenge it as the exclusive interpreter. So the way that we reduced it in length was that we cut all of my own dialogue from the film and instead let the interview speak for themselves. My role now was to interconnect those moments just by showing clips of myself on the road. 
If people wanted to learn more about my role, I have a website, I have a description, I'm doing talks, I'm always happy to talk more about it. And now we have the DVD available um, as the director's cut. <laughs> so in conclusion, Mosaic was a project really about movement, relationally co-created through emotional and intimate encounters around ethics. Resisting disciplinary boundaries in this project meant turning towards and leaning into the elements of the work that were collaborative, focused on appreciation, and highlighting the importance of access. And as always, Mosaic is an ongoing process. It lives on YouTube, people comment, uh, I can chat with them on there if I'd like, and I try to bring it wherever I can to share the knowledge and lessons in that film. Thank you so much. And I'm going to just hop away and let the next presenter come on up. Uh, sure. I, I don't think so. Yeah. Yes, Alvera, you're next. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Yes. How do you say it? Hufschmidt. Hufschmidt. Thank you. Sorry, I should have checked that earlier. So, well, Alvera's just getting ready. Uh, first of all, Thank you. Thanks again, Marcus. And we'll, I'm sure we'll come back and have lots of questions for you at the end as well. So next we've got Elvira Hufschmidt. I'm getting good at that. Um, who is talking about a genealogy of impacts, art and science collaborations through aesthetic transformations. Now, um, Elvira is a multimedia artist and author in the field of processes of aesthetic transformation and temporary art spaces. After graduating from the San Francisco Art Institute in the US with a Master of Fine Arts in New Genres, she lived and worked in Berlin, Germany for over 10 years. She taught as a guest professor for aesthetic transformation processes at the Berlin University of the Arts, as well as a visiting artist at Emily Carr University of Art and Design in Vancouver. As an affiliated researcher at the Berlin Centre for Advanced Studies in Arts and Science at the Berlin University of Arts, Germany, she investigated aesthetic transformation as a methodology for interdisciplinary collaboration in the Schirk-funded research project Leaning Out of Windows, Art and Physics Collaborations Through Aesthetic Transformations. Elvira is currently a second year PhD candidate in cultural studies at Queen's. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks everyone for coming. Um, now we sh you should probably help me to put this back up. Oh, sorry. Uh, okay, So um, I'm researching aesthetic transformation processes, and uh, I have the opportunity to be a collaborator in um, an art and physics project in Vancouver um, that is in, that uh, lives at Emily Carr University, uh, and it's a collaboration with several particle acceleration labs, um, Triumph in Vancouver, and Fermilab in Chicago, and. Uh, other collaborators um, and what I would like to present today is uh, aesthetic transformation as a research creation methodology and before I do that before I explain a little bit more what uh, aesthetic transformation entails um, I w just want to talk about the term research creation is everyone in here uh, has, an, has a, an, a concept of what, what research creation is. Most of, well, anyway, it can. 
Like what, like what exactly, what exactly is it, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So research creation is described by the Canadian um, federal government and uh, social science and humanities research council, SHRC, as a novel form of generation, of knowledge generation through a combination of creative production and research. So research creation can be considered an interdisciplinary field that allows for how I would for, uh, frame it, aesthetic experience to contribute to the generation of knowledge. So a creative art practice as part of research, that's research creation. Other terms used are artistic research, that's actually the term used in Europe, um, or we have heard today about arts-based research. Um, All right, so this is the, the website of the Leaning Out of Windows project. A leaning out of windows, and metaphorically, you kind of lean out of, a, you know, of, of the window to actually also get a little bit of a, a different viewpoint without hopefully losing your balance and totally fall out of whatever your disciplinary background is, so to speak. Um, and in this project, um, participants are asked to respond to a topic and to each other, to, and to each other's work, to produce a creative chain reaction. And this is here kind of represented through Ingrid uh, Koenig's drawing, where those individual dots are either artists or physicists, and the connections between them is the interaction. So here is that artists started to, um, they start a visual dialogue by responding creatively to a topic in physics. In this case, it's antimatter. And they pass their artworks on to other artists for their creative responses and eventually offer the results back to the physicists. And the creative dialogue takes place in a kind of a formalized uh, setting with a pre-planned so-called process design. Here you see a variety of process designs. Um, the f for the f this is a project that basically runs over uh, four years and in the first year um, the, the process was designed uh, in, into three different streams um, one was called blind stream, one was called tandem stream, one was called dialogical stream. Um, blind stream, for example, would have asked artists to respond to each other's work without actually knowing what the original topic was. So they would just pick up on each other's work. And I would love to show you that, that stream because there's a lot of interesting things happening there, what they picked up on, although... Um, they knew about each other's work, right? But not, they didn't participate in the original lecture of, uh, on, the, on the topic. Um, so the one that I would like to talk about, so the second tandem stream is, there are like P is always a physicist and A or B or C are artists. So they would either work closely together and have conversations with physicists and then create a response or in the dialogical stream um, the first artist would respond to the topic of antimatter 
and, and be in conversation with a physicist um, who had the option to either contribute with a, a work to or just stay within this kind of communicative role uh, by you know, talking about different aspects of the topic with the artists while the artist produces a work. And um, I think it's important to mention that the artists were asked not to illustrate the, the physics topic, but rather let themselves be inspired by aspects of the topic, which is actually a big difference. Um, they also we also said that art artists do not have to understand the topic in order to collaborate or to respond with the work. And the physicists were not expected to work artistically, so they don't have to become artists in order to contribute to the process, right, with the work. In, in contrary, actually, the question was how could the physicists let themselves be inspired in their own creative process by the artworks within their own mediums, tools, and forms of expression. And the game-like setting is structured by time constraints on rules, let's say time constraints, the dialogical stream that I will show you um, some example of um, had like an 11 week production period, other ones were shorter. Um, and then also a rule would be, you know, you may not know about the original topic or, and so on. So, but the example that I will give you uh, everyone has, has actually attended the original um, lecture series on the topic of antimatter. So the objective of the process is to fuel each other's creative practices by generating new ideas that may potentially contribute, potentially, to complex problem solving. Um, and just to give you a context, aesthetic transformation um, emerged from an, uh, an interdisciplinary art practice and also curriculum developed by, uh, by 11 artists and scholars at the Berlin University of the Arts in Germany, uh, myself among them, and we worked together and we wanted to kind of figure out how can, how can interdisciplinarity happen and um, we, we um, developed a three-year curriculum within this uh, guest professorship of what uh, was called at that point artistic transformation processes. And this is actually the German publication that we published. It says artistic transformation on it. And a current English reader on aesthetic transformation is in the making. Um, so far, I think nothing in English has published yet. And I also would like to acknowledge uh, Margit Schiff, my collaborator. We both have actually worked on or with this methodology uh, and with you know, other people um, over the course of the past 10 years, actually, and developed the, this methodology further, also applying it in different context, uh, contexts of community engagement and interdisciplinary ac academic learning. For example, here, just a quick this is a this is a, a process designed for a, actually a course that we taught, um, and I 
unfortunately also I can't get, get into it to explain you know how it really worked but that's that was one class that actually a third year visual arts class at Emily Carr uh, University in Vancouver that worked with a physics topic so we had a physicist coming to class and then we had a transformation process um, initiated started with you know exchange of works um, and so on and so on um, I can't uh, go into that unfortunately because I would like to show you some examples from what happened between the artists and the physicists the topic of antimatter was presented to the artists in a one day workshop with uh, lectures and also a tour through the particle acceleration lab Triumph in Vancouver. This here shows also a workshop where artists and physicists, we all would actually sit together to find out what would, would be the, the right uh, settings for this transformation process. So we worked really closely together. Is Jess Brewer in that area? Yeah, we're Jess we're Brewer. He is uh, in that some. I think, isn't it him here in the first, in the first him, table? Him. Yeah, that's him. It's been yeah. three years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> here he is again. <laughs> we just noticed that we uh, have, we know the same person who was invo um, involved in this project. Thank you. You know whether. So antimatter, antimatter is actually uh, one of the great unsolved problems in physics, because um, what it says is that every fundamental subatomic particle in the universe has an antimatter twin. So everything that's matter, subatomic particle, has an uh, antimatter twin. So the electron is paired with a positron, a quark is paired with an antiquark, a muon is, quark, uh, is paired with an antimuon. And each antiparticle weighs exactly the same as its twin, but exhibits precisely the opposite electrical charge. And if those twins actually meet each other, they annihilate and often produce light. Um, now, what this great unsolved problem is that we actually, if according to whatever is known now in physics, we actually are not supposed to exist because we only exist because there's some kind of excess matter, but no antimatter, and that's why we are here. So this is here because there's the antimatter parts are somehow missing. Yeah, and that's the question, and it's called asymmetry of matter and antimatter in the visible universe. So, um, these were the lectures where a day-long physicist would actually um, present uh, the, the topic, you know, from different angles to the artists. And um, I would like to switch to the internet now and show you the works of the internet. So those, I will show you four works and then finish up and then we can um, go to the next presenter. So here, 
This is Natalie Porschwitz. Um, she created uh, drawings, graphite drawings on paper. Um, she also, so she responded to um, the topic of matter and antimatter, things that are important versus things that are not important, and she collected discarded items in the acceleration lab at Triumph. So on the tour, she kind of noticed there was kind of a pile of discarded items that the physicists threw away, have thrown away. So she collected those ones and turned and turned the shapes into positive and negative um, kind of uh, visuals on a two-dimensional plane that you can see here in the background. So this was the, the, the drawings. And the items here were actually also cast as in black and, and plaster, but then painted black. And so she kind of played with those forms. Um, and she said that her interaction with the physicists, that she, they had a challenge in time arriving at this meeting place since our communication skills were heavily rooted in our own disciplines. And I found that in the beginning, our conversations were a bit like annihilations. So her translation into what matters and what doesn't matter kind of found this visual um, expression. And then what happens? And I think that's why I think this is really exciting. Um, the physicist Ewan Hill, he is actually also part of a greater research project called Atlas that works with CERN in Switzerland, where they try to find out, find you know, a, test the predictions of the standard model, um, and to actually also uh, understand of what the building blocks of matter are and how how that all is actually uh, connected. So what he does, he started to, he, he responded to Natalie's work, Natalie Porschwitz's work, by go through an association process. So he would basically take her visuals as the, as the, he treated her work as raw data, so to speak. So physicists, of course, work with visuals throughout their uh, research. So they, they use diagrams. They get like numerical information from the detectors, uh, the particle collision detectors, and but that's also turned into visuals. So what he da he did, he pretended that Natalie Pushwitz let's say forms, expression of forms would be the outcome of an experiment and he would kind of restage the experiments that would have her visuals as an outcome, if, if, if that is, um, if, I, if it's clear what I'm <laughs> trying to convey here. So um, with, within the detector tube, so a particle acceleration basically happens in a, in, a, in a tube where the inside is lined with sensors. So when particles collide, they disperse in every direction, and then the, the inside part detects where those particles and what particles and what energy state they have, um, um, where they basically are located. And this can be also unfolded into the two dimensions 
and then it appears as blobs, and that's how the translation happened for him from Natalie's graphic drawing to those blobs. And he was then creating this experiment using physics tools. I think it doesn't have sound, so that's good. Um, suggesting a model for an experiment that had her work as an outcome, so to speak. So what is exciting here is that he basically played the game. He, he, he didn't do like that's what, what would be considered thorough research or something, but he basically played the game and entered this creative process by pretending um, to do as if, you know, just pretending as if the artwork was raw data. And what is interesting here is um, that through that um, he basically brought in Another, maybe another angle on how to look at uh, at particle collision that he was working on at the moment, um, without really knowing if that would lead to anything. So, and I'm, I will show you the whole the whole chain reaction in order to to come to the point. Um, this just gives you an um, an impression of what his what his contribution was to the process. And again, he didn't he didn't pretend to be an artist. He basically um, just stayed in his disciplinary field, but responded creatively. And then the next artist is Kate Metten, and she responded to the physicist's work with um, ceramic. And um, she uses both 2D and surfaces and 3D shapes, and um, that how she claims it uh, shapes the uh, shapes that explore the movement of the particle and Feynman diagrams. A Feynman diagram is a diagram that shows what happens when elementary particles collide. And she showed connection of a cyclical momentum that is requi required to both. Um, to both the accelerator physics research and her wheel-thrown ceramic sculpture. These works each consist of a double-walled wheel-thrown th uh, toroid. Toroid is a, is a surface of revolution with a hole in the middle. Um, uh, one in its original state and another is altered into a sym symmetrical rocking and a third altered toroid is painted with oil. So this sculptural form is capable of oscillating back and forth, and the potential for the sculptural movement is a key aspect to the work because it's physics in motion, according to her. They also, uh, she also said that the dialogue between artists and physicists was eye-opening since our different backgrounds meant that we have different vocabularies and ways of describing similar experiences. So different vocabularies, but same experiences, similar experiences. Which physicist was she looking at? Um, she was responding to uh, Yoon Hill, 
and she but but she also had a conversations with uh, Carla Barquest is her name. And the third person, the, uh, the fourth artist, Carla would not respond with a, her own work, but with a communication chain. So, and then eventually this was responded to by uh, a performance artist, and I want to show you a quick excerpt of that, and then, um, bye. So for Evan Siebens, uh, the switch between color and black and white film represents the oscillating dance between matter and antimatter. And she asked the questions, is it a matter of an extra dance step for neutrinos? Perhaps the antineutrinos will learn new choreography and change the course of time. I want to le leave it here. So um, I hope that it kind of makes transparent that an aesthetic transformation process can basically uh, bring forward certain, certain aspects of inspiration and uh, where from the beginning this uh, Natalie Purschwitz idea of what is matter, what doesn't matter, and then Yoon Hill transporting this into this context of a, a, an experiment where the, the tube and the, and the co collision and the movement and the uh, acceleration of particles are, uh, became important, That how that was taken up by the ceramics sculptures of uh, Kate Metten, who translated this into a completely different, it actually was embedded in the way the sculpture was made through the uh, throwing of the wheel. And then again in perform for in a performative setting with Yun uh, Ibn Sibbins. So to just sum it up, um, this formalized way of actually being creative together um, makes a multiplicity of viewpoints visible. And the question here for us also, for myself, was um, if the physicists may the physicists be able to reconnect those different perspectives to the original topic in order to potentially gain new insights on the topic as well. So, so that just, you know, we're not just creative for, for the fun or the sake of it, but just does it actually really matter to physics as well? And that's what we're basically still working on, having conversations around. 
um, how does is it possible to to kind of translate associations and metaphor um, how could this be translated back into a rational system of logic if you want um, through a, through a um, another method, what we can call visual literacy. And visual literacy is the ability to interpret, negotiate, and make meaning from information presented in the form of an image. It could mean that the meaning of literacy, which commonly signifies interpretation or written text, um, is here based on the idea that pictures can be read and that meaning can be generated through a process of reading. And what I just want to say at the end is, although we have more questions and answers <laughs> with this research, it, it, what I can say for certain is that an aesthetic transformation process, um, in an aesthetic transformation process, the flow of inspiration and influence that usually remains hidden in creative processes, they are focused on and can be questions in retrospect. And this opportunity, I find, makes it uh, particularly suitable as an interdisciplinary research and teaching tool. And it allows for inquiry through the stimulation and visualization of ideas, as well as a framework for reflection and on a series of influences. Thank you. Carolyn's getting, first of all, thank you very much for Elvira. And while Carolyn's getting herself set up, maybe we just have one quick question from anyone right now? Or a comment or anything on that? Yeah, so, so we, we're in so we're, time. We're, we're, anyway, we're what, 12, 12, 10? 12, 10? Yeah. Oh, okay. Because you've still got one more student. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, I have way, huge numbers of questions for you, so I look forward to talking more with you. Okay, okay, okay. Let's do that then. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Okay, so now we've got uh, Carolyn Kimball, who's going to talk about interdisciplinary solutions to chemistry's, chemistry's, chemistry's accessibility problem. Uh, Carolyn is a multidisciplinary scholar focusing on computational chemistry and chemistry education. As an undergraduate, she worked developing statistical methods for a study of pesticide concentrations in honeybees in southern Ontario. She also spent, after graduating from the University of Waterloo with a degree in chemistry and math, she lived and worked in Switzerland, introducing young children to concepts from science and math. And Carolyn is currently a master's student in, in chemistry here at Queen's. So take it away. Okay, thank you very much. So, what I'm looking at, you know, interdisciplinary solutions to chemistry's accessibility problem, it isn't necessarily what I'm, what my research project is about. It's more something that I fell headfirst into. <laughs> so, you know, just starting off, like in chemistry, like you can kind of, you can break, you know, chemistry into roughly, like, you know, three domains that we, you know, that we'll interact with things in. You know, symbolically, we'll write equations, we'll draw reaction mechanisms on paper. You know, macroscopically, you, know, you have the chemicals in front of you, you observe the properties of the solutions, you know, and look at what that means. And then submicroscopic, where you're actually looking at individual molecules, individual atoms, some, you know, even electrons, and how they behave. So to do that, you know, so like there's a whole, like it spans a lot of different areas. 
So, for example, we have like we have so many ways of representing the same thing. This is propane, like you would have for your grill outside. So you can draw it as a line. Then you know, like you can write parts of it, line and Lewis structure. You can have a space filling model. You like when you look at the spectrum as a chemist, you like you know that means propane. You could you also have to be able to recognize it just from the container. So there's that that's eight different ways right there of communicating exactly this like the same information that you have this molecule. So like because chemistry is the central science, if you want everything goes through it. So math math and physics are pretty strongly tied. But if you want to get, you know, from like between physics and biology, you need to go through chemistry. You, 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 we use chemistry and astronomy to look at what compounds and what elements are present in stars or faraway planets. We, you know, we have the quantum mechanics aspect. There's equations. There's plots. There's orbital diagrams. Like all of these different things. So we, we have all of these different visual ways of representing information. But then, how do we make it accessible? Because in, in a discipline, for example, English or literature, you can have a screen reader read it. That's, that's fine. In biology, you make models. Um, in, you, can have physical, you can have physical representations of geography. But how do you represent, how do you make all of these different methods of communicating information accessible to, to students and to people? So. In my undergrad, um, I was taking a math course, dif differential equations, so I was a little bit behind my professors. He was lecturing. So, you know, okay, yeah, the, La the Laplace transform. Okay, sure, that makes sense. Um, you know, I thought, you know, like, he said Laplace. However, I took it to mean the Pokemon, <laughs> which led to this wonderful cover on the math student newspaper about a week later. <laughs> So, like, another, you know, another time, you know, I was in my fourth year project. I was looking at triazines with two E's, the first one. We were looking at how to rotate things around, around the bonds, you know. And so, like, my work was going great, but I was having a hard time looking at, like, the re looking at the literature about it. Well, it turns out that I was researching triazines with an I, which... You don't need to know a lot about chemistry to know that you that that is not going to rotate very well. You're, you're kind of stuck in the hexagon there. So I didn't find this out until like after I'd already submitted my my interim report. I got it back. My supervisor said, "No, this is all wrong. None of this is correct." And I'm going, "No, I can show you my sources." So I just happened to Google it and click on the Wikipedia page. Which led to my discovery that I had been misspelling it for the past eight months. <laughs> so, and even more recently, like in my in my current research in my master's. So, I I can appreciate that you may not be you know you may not be all that comfortable with math or calculus. However, you know the the top one, which is what it was written. There are two integrals. You know, there's the equation. Okay. Well, I was missing one of those integrals, which you, know, you could say it was an integral part of the equation. <laughs> so, like, I was sitting, I was going, I have no idea what, like, I have no idea what's going on. I don't know what, how this is supposed to make sense. It doesn't work. So I, like, I spent months thinking that I just didn't understand the fundamentals of what I was doing. 
and you know, like I spoke to my supervisor, he was amazing, super patient, you know, and like he did send me a document that explained it all. But like by that time, I'd already, I was already looking at changing my research project because I thought I just didn't, I couldn't do that, I couldn't do it. <laughs> well, it turns out that, you know, like I was reading through like this, this kind of, you know, simplified document he sent me and I saw that bottom equation written out with the parentheses, with the brackets, and it's like, oh. <laughs> I literally put my head down on my desk for a few minutes after that. You know, so like, that, and it's little mistakes, you know, I find for me, it's little mistakes that catch me. I, you know, I can handle the big concepts, but like, I need something that'll, that'll allow me to catch those little mistakes before I spend, you know, before I spend three months working on something and have already set up a an alternate research project with a different supervisor. <laughs> yeah. So, like, overall, like, accessibility and accommodation are, like, something that are legally required. So post-secondary student institutions need to accommodate students and staff to the point of undue hardship, which means, essentially, to the point where the university would no longer be able to function if they did not accommodate which, as you can imagine, is a pretty high bar. However, like, you know, we need, like, in chemistry, currently there really isn't a way to make it accessible that also follows those, the key principles under the uh, Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act, which are independence, you know, dignity, integration, and equality of opportunity, specifically independence. Because when I'm working on my project, I don't, like, I don't want to have to send something away and, or, you know, I don't want to have to have somebody looking over my shoulder. I want to work on it myself. Um, something that I found that I, like, a quote that I really appreciated, um, just the Queen's Accessibility Services website, was that uh, academic accommodations are put in place to equalize learning opportunities, you know, for students with disabilities. And like, there's a lot of misunderstanding. You know, like professors will question why students need accommodations. Well, because if you if you don't, then you have then you might have a student spending eight months researching the wrong molecules, for example. You know, so like, what do accommodations help with? Well, like an example would be, you know, for undergrads, they'll get extra time. Some students will get extra time to write their exams. So if you have a reading or information processing disability, you need extra time to just understand what you're being asked to write, what you're being asked to do. Written expression, you need more time to actually formulate your answer and to physically write it out. So some people with mental health disabilities will need time to implement coping strategies, you know, to calm themselves down if, if that's an issue. Or even, you know, if you break your arm, like if, you if you break your arm, you're not going to be able to write the exam as quickly or as easily as you would normally, so you need extra time. You know, and that's just one example of accommodations, but I find it's often misunderstood. So, like, I think it's a good place to start with. So, there are tons of different accommodations that we can offer undergrads. During exams, they can get extra time, they can get a larger font, they can use a spell checker, they can type it. You know, at home, you can use a screen reader, you can get a tutor, there's dictation software. You know, you can record your lectures. Like, you have a note taker. There's like there's tons of ways we can do that for undergraduates. You know, but what I've noticed in, in my experience is that the ways that you access information 
like you're you have more your options are more and more limited the further you get into your into whatever area you choose to study when you're beginning your undergrad you yeah there's academic papers but like there's in textbooks but then you can speak to people there are lectures you go to labs that are arranged for you to learn the concepts there are online materials as you and as you get further into your discipline Okay, you maybe, you know, second or third year, you may not have as much online, but you still have all of those other resources. Then you reach a point when, like, there aren't really textbooks written on this. There aren't really other people you can talk to. Nobody can give a lecture on it because you're doing research. It's something new. So you need to be, like, the only way you can access information is by reading it. So why is that a problem? Well, apparently all the visual information in chemistry just isn't accessible. If you're, like, Specifically, for students who are blind, there are tons of ways to turn things, to turn diagrams into 3D models. We can print things into Braille. And like, t there are plenty of blind chemists they've come, you know, who have found ways to do that, and that's fantastic. However, as a student who is dyslexic, who never learned Braille, that's a bit of a problem. One, because dyslexia even exists even in Braille. <laughs> And two, because I, I don't have years and years to spend learning it just to read one paper. So, like, right now, diagrams in textbooks don't have descriptions that are readable for screen readers. Um, you know, like, molecules don't have screen reader support. And equations are just starting to get, you know, starting to get that ability. But all of this is limited. My, my main concern as an instructor is that students with disabilities are confusing like inaccessible with impossible. They don't, they think, they don't think they can do it, whereas, instead of, like, whereas it's, just not in, it's just not an accessible format to them. So like, you know, when, when you're in first year, like my students ask me all the time, like, like, am I not getting it or like, you know, is it, or am I just missing this information? But when you're doing original research, you don't have anyone to, to ask. And so, like, if we don't have these tools and we don't, or we don't have alternative ways of doing things, we can't meet our duty to accommodate just because there's no way, we don't have a way that exists yet. So, like, in the meantime, while we're working on that, you know, like, we can improve our ability to just identify students with these issues because a lot of them come into university without, without having that be ident being identified. Um, I have one student, um, one of my third years from last term, who's working on getting diagnosed with, with an issue right now. Because we, her, her instructor and I, we saw her struggling, we know she wasn't doing as well, but we didn't know why. We can give students extra lecture materials, just writing things out explicitly, showing things. And, you know, try not to take as many shortcuts when you're writing things. You know, um, posting documents that are typed so screen, screen readers can read them. And something that I'd be interested in is alternate exa examination styles. Okay, maybe you can't draw out the mechanism for this reaction, but can you explain what would happen? Or can you show me, you know, can you show me what, what would be happening in another way? So part of why, and you know, the big reason why I'm here is just what do you do? Like in wherever you work to make things more accessible or just to present things in a different way? Because in like in chemistry, we're kind of out of ideas. So I want, like, I want to see, I want to, I'm turning to everybody else, you know, to find out what we can do to make this better. So thank you so much for listening. Do we have time for one question each?
I think so. Sure. I just want to get your contact. Uh, oh, yeah. Someone I want to connect you with urgently. There you go. Yeah, sure. There's someone who's doing her PhD in geography right now and uh -huh. looking for someone like you to connect with. Oh, cool. Yeah. She's come from the British system where they have a lot of ideas for dealing with um, helping people with dyslexia mm -hmm. in higher education, yeah. oh, but doesn't awesome. exist here for yeah. her graduate students oh, on yeah, that level. Awesome. And she would love to work with someone on this. She's awesome. perfect. Yeah, yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah. So, Elvira, mm -hmm. if, if I'm, an, I'm, forgive me, like I said, I'm not an academic, so I think mm -hmm. I look at things very generally. Mm -hmm. So, with the work that you're doing, I'm, I'm assuming it's all about not to do with knowledge mobilization in one hand, right, to get the word out there. So, are you looking at using art and, and science, in this particular one it was physics, are you using this as a better way to, do, to pick something that's that for the general population is hard for us to understand. Mm -hmm. So is it that side, mm -hmm. or is it both sides as well for physics to understand there's mm -hmm. water there? Yeah, great question, but it's actually exactly not that. Okay. <laughs> no, it's good. It's because good uh, most physicists also really wanted to work with artists because they want to communicate whatever they're researching to an audience better, right. right? Because through visuals you can just communicate things better. And this is actually not what this is about. It's really about, I w I'm not sure if you want to call it genuine, uh, genuine, genuine research, meaning with whatever response an artist has to a certain topic that uh, could just be focusing on a certain aspect, picking that out, visualizing something, and then within the transformation process, someone else could probably pick up some on something else that could eventually lead to something more meaningful if if it's if if it's translated back into physics, if that makes sense. Okay. So okay. it does have the effect that yes, in some instances, it uh, communicates ideas better. Right. That but you know, has better than language alone. Mm -hmm. But that's not the the ultimate goal. Um, have you heard of a Fourier transform at all in any of your discussions with physicists? It's like it seems it it seems very similar, like in idea to what you what you're doing. Uh, like in math, we like you take the, the you know whatever expression you're dealing with, you transform it into a different space, and you work you work with it there, and then you transform it back and get something you know that's you get the results you need. And that's called Fourier. Yeah, for uh, F O U R I E R. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I'll, uh, yeah. There's like there's s several similar methods like that. Coincidentally, also the Laplace transform. <laughs> 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 yeah, but um, one of the more common ones is for yeah the Fourier. Hmm. That's mm -hmm. cool. Yeah, you switch like um, the common way of looking at it is you switch it from looking at things you know as I go through time to the frequencies. Right. But that seems like a good. It seems like an analogy. Like you know, it's very similar an idea to what you do. To look at it from different angles yeah. in order to maybe find yeah. something that we haven't known yet. Yeah. yeah. Mm. 
going to be kind of an interesting theme that runs about through our, all three of our presentations around the way in which that art and research like have this yes. re relationship mm -hmm. where it becomes like this, this translating process. Um, like yours is obviously the most explicit in that function where the, these physicists' ideas are being literally spurned on through the translation of creative mm -hmm. work back into research and back into creative mm -hmm. work. But I also see that in what you're talking about around uh, navigating accessibility and dis mm -hmm. and specifically dyslexia in an academic setting mm -hmm. and like the barriers to that translation yeah. work. And then mm -hmm. my work as well is, again, it is a, like, it was the work of recognizing that I actually was a limited translator mm -hmm. of my own project. Um, so yeah, it's just really interesting to see this like common theme, but that how it's expressed so differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What 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 would you say? What was what was the limitation? So in my work, I would say what I realized my own limit was to be the uh, the author of that translation. So imagine myself as the sole interpreter of the work, the person right. who is gathering data and defining the end result, and then realizing that actually the even at the level of data gathering. Um, I actually needed to have a more reciprocal relationship with the participants. Right. Um, yeah, which is why ultimately when I revisited the work in 2018, I didn't analyze the participants as much as I did analyze the creative text that they had produced. Yeah, so that's also collaborative work, right? That you create meaning together, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. And ideally, that meaning that we've created together then goes back into the community and feeds further discussion on the research side and on the creative right. side. Yeah. Do you see your work being done with other disciplines? Oh, it's totally been done with other disciplines. Right. This is just, just, just the way this, this one was. Yeah, it it was just the stroke of luck that you know this kind of collaboration came about. But I basically I worked with a participant, like uh, inhabitants of a rural community in Germany, creating a film with this methodology, um, just with very different. Um, Groups of people, mm -hmm. and then also in a in a teaching and learning setting, that because it, it's a very easy way to to provide interdisciplinarity if you want right. or transdisciplinarity uh, within the classroom. So, so Carolyn, with your stuff, yeah. with because um, clearly education is very important for for your yeah. side. Are you trying to look at ways of particularly with chemistry of how? Mm -hmm you can identify some of those issues earlier on, like even in primary school and high school before um, they even get to university. Well, like, I think that, like, there are, there are tons of methods to identify learning issues in children. But, like, I mean, children won't necessarily get, you know, like, if they're, if they can manage and cope or whatever, they won't necessarily get, you know, get that testing mm -hmm. when they're younger. You know, so, like, I, I think it might be, like, I, I'd be, I would love to see, like, ways of identifying it more in, Old, like in you know older students, mature students, or adults just in general, because like that's like you know the, the tests that you use on a five year old for you know won't necessarily like especially if you learned how to cope won't work on a twenty five year old or a thirty year old. So like that's like you know way like mostly just ways of identifying those students so that they aren't struggling unnecessarily. Yeah, because I know that slide you had where you had eight options of showcasing yeah. the same thing. Yeah. It's like we don't have the resources to have eight options for every way of mm -hmm. teaching someone about a particular mm -hmm. subject. Well, I mean, but I mean, with that, it's the, the problem with that is that you need to recognize all eight of those. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it isn't like 
sure, I, you know, like, oh, yeah, I'll, I know three lines is probably propane. <laughs> I might, you know, might get the name wrong, but, like, then recognizing the spectra, recognizing all of the other drawings of it mm -hmm. as the same molecule, just in, you know, different perspectives, mm -hmm. that's, like, that's a big challenge, especially that, like, um, that, un that undergraduate space. Yes. Is that the amazing? This is a brilliant panel. Yes, <laughs> really, it really is. It's going to it take is. a while to absorb how brilliant this was. <laughs> <laughs> but it seemed like the one thing that uh, each of you talked about in these, um, and maybe not. I think it was there in yours too. I'm just thinking of these moments of of recognizing uh, ab absence, or uh, right. like in the yeah, journals for you. Um, this moment for you of not seeing the integral part of the integrated <laughs> equation, mm -hmm. and. Um, I'm sure there's many, many moments. I mean, so the, not knowing, maybe. the not knowing, and but yeah. how you each, uh, the part of the process, whatever it is, and your decision. I mean, turning that around and making a transformational moment. Yeah. So you said you put your head on the desk for a while, but you end up giving this talk. Yeah. yeah. You know, or, or thinking mm -hmm. about how this matters for others, or do you know, like mm -hmm. it's really like how you each. I don't know. I find like these are things that need to like modeled become like how do we do this collaborative thing? Right. Like how do we together look at these these things that maybe seemed at the time like you, if you have a feeling something's uh, you know and turn it in those moments where you are totally goosebumpy because you've seen what was invisible. Right. <laughs> you right. know, right. Yeah. so yeah. it's it's really exciting. Well, like when I when I said I was going to do this talk back in what, November or something, I was originally going to talk about like my research and like how you know visualizing it, you know, like how incorporating other methods of that of you know representing it would help. Yeah, so like the, the topic of my talk has changed many, many times <laughs> in the last few months. But I think that's good though. I think yeah. having because you, you you learn new things and you go, oh yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. Let's look at the next perspective, and that's I think that's what the whole mm -hmm. thing about this weekend is: is how can we come from different mm -hmm. lenses of mm -hmm. yeah. of uh, looking at research? And yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, to speak to your point, in the the case of the film, you know, I mentioned that the photographer that we had for the night at the launch event had to leave. Yes. But when I returned to those original documents, um, Shane sent me over a bunch. The editor of the film sent me a bunch of uh, stuff he'd had on a hard drive and just sort of hadn't put to use in the film and on it I found a bunch of photos that Shane had taken on his phone and like wow. photos the photographer had never processed and sent to us so um, I started to realize that like that sense of absence is also very much related to one's positionality yeah. and that things sometimes only appear absent based on where you stand obviously so the work of inviting in alternative perspectives and voices literally fills those absences and also you can help it fill theirs in return it becomes this really beautiful reciprocal process when done well. Well, I, I take my hat off to all three of you because they're all very, very different. It's really nice to see different ways of, of doing research from the usual, let's read some literature or go up and do a lab experiment and stuff like this. So um, well done to all three of you. And I hope you have more opportunities to actually get that work out there. Um, can always come on, grab chat and tell me. Ways where you can, and I know you're, uh, Marcus. You're looking at other areas that you're you're going out and presenting and things. I think we all need to do that and have various showcases. So well done to all three of you. I'm sorry to have to cut this off, but you no, may want to go and get you. some lunch before the final keynote. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, it's true. Thanks.
that's it for this panel discussion. We hope that you'll listen to another, or better yet, join us at the next Beyond Boundaries conference. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. (laughs) 